I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 167, and today in the show, it is story time, as I'm sharing all the details of my absolutely mind-blowing, unbelievable Alaskan caribou hunting experience and an update on my still-in-progress Montana public land whitetail hunt. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, it's just Dan and I. And I have got some stories to tell. But uh, but Dan, before all that, well, what's what's new with you? Mark, let's just cut the bullshit right now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares about what's going on with me, especially when you're posting pictures behind a giant caribou and your social <laughs> media feed is saying, oh, cool, man, look, I'm in Montana in a white, you know, hunting whitetail. <laughs> when the the coolest thing I've done in the past two weeks is I okay I checked one trail, trail camera my family got a new house uh, my wife gets mad because my son has a running nose and he wipes his boogers on it uh, my wife's pregnant <laughs> and she's about to pop that's my life right there thirty seconds really well right? hold so you got a new house that's news no a new couch oh couch couch yeah couch. Okay, yeah. I remember the yeah, we, couch story, the brownie points yeah. of the couch story. Yep, that was the birthday present. So, and my son, he's in this mode. This is disgusting, and I'm sure all boys at some point did it, but he is in full-blown pick-your-nose-and-eat-it mode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm slapping his hand away. I'm saying, no, that's <laughs> disgusting. And he looks at me like... I'm not even there just with these hollow eyes and he picks his nose and puts it in his <laughs> mouth. And I'm just like, buddy, that is disgusting. That is disgusting. Oh, <laughs> Mac, he's going to be a troublemaker. Oh, buddy. He already is. He, he just doesn't give it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care, which is kind of cool. I, I see him as growing up being the kid that never gets peer pressured into doing anything because he doesn't care what other people are doing. He just, he's that kid who just, Hey man, I don't care if you think picking boogers is, and eating them is gross. 
I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be happy doing he's it. He's going to be 18. I'm like, I don't care, man. I don't care. <laughs> well, good for him. <laughs> uh, yeah, good for him. Oh, good for him. man. So I'm thinking today we flip the script a little bit. And this is the Wired to Hunt podcast, but I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about your trip, your trips, you know, the caribou hunt with Ranella, the uh, Montana, um, you know, the Montana adventures that you got going on and just kind of shoot from the hip like we always do. Yeah, I think that's a good plan because there's there's lots to share over what, what I've been doing over the past few weeks and uh, what's going on this week, too. So, yeah, um, so I could either just like, I mean, do you want to hear about my Alaska trip? Should we start no, there? Mark. No, nobody wants to hear about that. Shut <laughs> up. Here, this is this is. But before we get into the Alaska trip, right? Yeah. You, what were you doing before that? I mean, because you went antelope hunting, right? We talked about that a little bit, and you, you never tagged out, right? No, I didn't tag out because um, I only had one day to hunt. Um, um, because you know I was there with my wife and just had a lot of stuff going on. I was trying to prep, get as much work done as I could before heading off for these trips. And, um, and then I also was going on a pack rafting trip, um, that I, that I was doing for this other project I'm working on. So did, did I tell you about how that went? No, you did not. And I think that's going to be a great place to start. Yeah. So that was, man, it has been a pretty epic couple of weeks. Cause that was one of the very coolest trips I've ever done. Um, so me and my buddy Andy Bradley, we went and did a pack rafting slash fishing slash backpacking trip in the Bob Marshall Wilderness up in northern Montana. And yeah. the Bob is one of the largest, you know, wilderness with a capital W areas in the lower 48 states. And um, for those that don't know, you know, when I say wilderness, I'm not saying just like generically, oh, it's wild. I'm saying like it's a designated by the federal government wilderness area. So that means there's no motorized traffic, no permanent structures. Um, it's it's the highest protection that's given to public lands. So what that means basically is it's it's super, super rugged, super wild. And uh, one of the highest densities of grizzly bears in the lower 48. So just an oh, awesome wow. place. Um, so me and Andy... We rented these rafts and we threw them. And well, Kylie dropped us off at like this reservoir, and we rafted, paddled our way up this reservoir for like four miles. And man, right as we started going, it started like pouring rain and like twenty or thirty <laughs> mile an hour wind. And I'm like, oh god, what did we get ourselves into? Um, like we could hardly make any progress because the wind was blowing right in our face. But we finally we made it a few miles down, and then like. The water levels were so low in the reservoir that actually just like we just like ran out of water. Um, we couldn't yeah. find a channel that kept going up into the river, so we had to take the boats out, pack them all back up, and then strap them to our backpacks. And then we hiked another like I don't know another four miles or so till we got to a campsite. Had a black bear run across right in front of us, which was kind of cool. And then um, the next day we hiked another like six to eight miles, something like that. And then the final two days, we rafted this river all the way back to where we started. So it was a four-day trip, half packing, half rafting, um, and then we fished every day. And, um, man, unbelievable scenery, just like beautiful yeah. rolling hills and mountains. And then this river was just this gorgeous kind of snake of emerald winding its way through this valley. And then every once in a while, you get to these big rocky cliffs and stuff, and... Um, 
we saw lots of deer eagles um, we didn't see any grizz but we did have um, a good number of tracks around us that we saw there was a big track and uh, mom sow and cub track near our camp one day and then um, our last day hiking out we walked right in like fresh from that morning tracks that were heading towards us so at some point he was on the trail and he probably heard us coming headed off the trail and then uh, we just passed through wow so that was crazy but man the fishing was the it was the very best fly fishing i've had in my entire life like by leaps and bounds um between the two of us like the first day the first night i caught nine and andy caught like 15 the next day we both caught like i caught 27 he caught 30 the next day it was like 33 and 33 the next day we didn't fish very much but, but still caught some but i mean it was insane and that was just the fish that we landed like that we got to our hand there were so many fish fish that we missed or that broke off or that we lost at some point i mean it was just yeah. the most fun fly fishing ever it was nuts so i want to ask you a question real quick this trip you rafted and then you had to deflate the rafts right and and hike with them on your back yeah yep so we had we had the rafts on our back we had paddles we had the inflating device we had a life jacket and we had all of our regular backpacking stuff too so we had tents and sleeping bags and sleeping pads and food for four days and all of our fishing gear so fly rods reels flies all that stuff so we had we had some big packs on yeah so uh the next question well it's not really a question yes it is a question I want, will you, will you promise to take me on that same trip someday? Yeah, dude. If you can make it out there, we should definitely oh, do that. Yeah. It was, okay, cool. it was, I mean, I've done a lot, I've done a ton of backpacking trips, but yeah. this was a really cool change of pace because yeah, you were, yeah. you were, you did some backpacking and hiking. So you feel like you worked for it, but then half the trip, you were just floating along and like enjoying yourself. And the river was like, right. it was at a nice point as far as water levels where it's it relatively low water. So the rapids that you hit, you know, they weren't too bad. So you didn't feel like yeah. you're going to die, but there was enough that like you had an adrenaline rush and you better, you better like paddle well and get around these rocks otherwise you're gonna get flipped so there was enough excitement but then there were these long stretches where you just floated with your feet in the water and just enjoyed it so it was like relaxing adrenaline relaxing adrenaline catch a bunch of fish Um, wow so yeah and just gorgeous weather i mean it was like 80s in the day but like a dry 80 so comfortable really nice and cool at night and um man it was just amazing amazing trip and um, that's you know part of this um, public land related writing project I'm working on. Going to share that story and that. So uh, excited about that! Super cool trip. And then I came back and I had like three days to get all my shit around, pack up, well, de- un- unpack from that trip, and then start packing for the new trip. Yeah. And then uh, Kylie and her friend Megan took off, and they road tripped through Yellowstone and Grand Teton on their way back to Michigan. And then I drove my camper into Bozeman and parked in the long-term parking lot, slept in the long-term parking lot in the airport on a Friday night, and then I left for Alaska. Nice. So how long was that float trip in total? Four days total. Okay, four days. All right, yep. cool. So that's uh, something that you would recommend to somebody in, oh, in the future? Highly, highly recommend a pack rafting trip like that. And, you know, I think you got to – 
you know, be aware of like your skill set. And if you've never rafted or paddled a kayak or anything and, and, you know, don't have those experiences, I would like either go with someone who does or try to learn before doing this. And then make sure you check on water flow levels for a river like this. Um, cause this river that we did, if we did it at much higher flows, um, it could be dangerous, especially yeah. if you didn't really know what you're doing. And I, I don't, I'm not an expert by any means of this. I've, I paddled a decent bit, but I, I was even a little nervous you know, not knowing exactly how rough these things are going to be, but for a lot of rivers, maybe all rivers, um, I'm not exactly sure on that, but the USGS keeps water flow, um, meters in most of these rivers. So you can actually go on Google and look up, you know, in just Google, you know, X river water flow, and it'll show you what the flow rate is. And, um, that, that gives you a, a good like starting point. And then, man, there's so much information online these days that people kind of, you know, give you like guides for different rivers and stuff. So, I found a website that had all sorts of information about different rivers you can raft in the Bob Marshall or in that general area. And then he had information that was saying, okay, you know, at at this flow rate, it's like class five rapids, like super dicey. At this flow rate, it could be like class two to three and be pretty decent. At this flow rate, it's too low. Um, So just look up that kind of stuff. Um, but there's, there's a lot of rivers like this you can do in the Bob in that general area. There's the Bob this it's called the Bob Marshall wilderness complex. And that includes the Bob Marshall wilderness, the scapegoat wilderness and the, uh, no crap. I think it's the great bear wilderness or something like that. I'm probably wrong, but there's three wilderness areas all tucked in just South of Glacier national park. And that forms this Northern Rockies ecosystem. Um, and it's just, just an unbelievable section of Montana. So highly recommend, you know, what's cool about it is, I mean, glaciers is epic, epic mountains. But once you go south of that into these wilderness areas, you don't have nearly the crowds. So you can yeah. see some similar things to glacier, but not deal with, you know, thousands of people. So, right. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like fun. All right. So real quick, before we go any further, I want to pause real quick to thank our partners at Sitka Gear. And rather than share a typical Sitka story from someone else, I thought I'd share a bit about my own experiences on this Alaska trip we're talking about because really, you know, this whole podcast is a Sitka story. And for this hunt, I needed a bunch of new gear that was going to be appropriate for the location and the type of things that we were going to be doing. So here's a system that I ended up using and that worked very, very well for me. On the bottom for this hunt, I was wearing the Sitka Timberline pants. These are just like a super rugged soft shell type pant. It's like their their prototypical sheep hunter's pant, um, but it worked great for this too. And it's got this heavy-duty reinforced backside and heavy-duty knee pads actually in the front that I ended up really, really liking. So, so this pant is really built for the kind of hunt I was on where you're crawling or kneeling or sitting down and glassing a lot. So loved those pants. And even, you know, even when it was down in the thirties or ripping windy, which it was a lot, you know, this was all I ever needed to wear on my lower half, nothing else. Now on the top, I wore a core lightweight base layer, a core mid-weight quarter zip layer, and then my fanatic hoodie. And then when it got really cold or windy, I topped it all off with the Kelvin light hoodie. And that's like a ultra light packable 
puffy type jacket. And everything there in that list, it performed great and it gave me the flexibility that I needed to shed or add layers based on the conditions or activities. So I was able to you know, be comfortable out there no matter if it was super hot or super cold. And then finally I had the Stormfront jacket and pants for my rain gear. And we did get some pretty serious rain on two of the days I was out there and this gear worked flawlessly. I got, I got another number of compliments on it actually. And the pants and jacket I found were just really smartly designed with pockets and adjustment points exactly where you'd want them. I couldn't have been happier with it and no point did I get wet or water seeping in anywhere. So that's what you want to hear. So there you have it. That's my Alaskan caribou hunt Sitka system. And stick around here for more of my Sitka story as, you know, as you might expect, this hunting experience is really once in a lifetime, and I'm just really glad that my clothing enabled me to be out there and to be effective and to be comfortable. So if you'd like to make a Sitka story of your own someday, you can learn more at SitkaGear.com. Now, transitioning to your Alaska trip, did you, before we even talk about the travel to get there, I know that you were pumped and jacked to start you know, that you even got the opportunity to do this. So before you left, did you have any expectations of what this trip, this big Alaska trip was going to be like? You know, a little bit. Um, You know, I knew when, when I got the invite, I talked to the guys about it and they, you know, shared some information and they said that they had, they had heard really good things about the area we were going into. Um, and we're flying with a, with a transporter. So basically there's, there's lots of different kind of bush plane type operations up in Alaska where they transport hunters and all sorts of people way back there into the wilderness. And, um, the transporter we were, we were going with was very reputable. They're well known to, you know, you know, they'll, they'll get you in the right places and everything like that. So it sounded like the plan was to go into an area that should be really good, um, and there's a migration of caribou that comes through here this time of year. That's fifty thousand caribou strong. Is this yeah. population? It's the forty mile herd, and um, it's somewhere around fifty thousand caribou. They all kind of they bunch up more and more and more as they get into September and October. So. I knew based on all those things, there was a good chance of seeing a lot of animals. Um, yeah. And then I also knew that it was going to be like beautiful country. Um, they had done a hunt up in this general area last year for moose, um, yeah. somewhere within like 20, 30 miles maybe of where we're at, give or take. Um, so they, you know, I, I heard a little bit about the general terrain and stuff, but that's basically all I knew. Um, okay. And so it was going to be myself hunting, uh, Ranello was hunting, and then Steve's friend, Doug Duran. Um, who's a guy from Wisconsin, a whitetail hunter from Wisconsin, um, who's done a lot of stuff with Steve. And, and Steve's hunted on Doug's property lot in Wisconsin. So this is kind of like a way of saying thank you to Doug, I think, inviting him on this trip. Yeah, for so sure. So it was going to be the three of us hunting. And then there was four other people that were on the production side of things, so the crew. So there was two full-time cameramen and then the producer, and then a wilderness production assistant is what they call this other guy, Brody. Um, and both of the, uh, Giannis and Brody both had some cameras too for different things, but um, but yeah, so I, so I knew I was going in there with seven guys. That was going to be really different, and I knew it was going to be beautiful, and I knew we would probably see a lot of caribou. And that was basically all I knew, and those were 
my expectations going in were just like, I'm going to Alaska and it's going to be like yeah. an amazing experience. Whether I killed anything or not, like I wasn't really concerned about that at all. Like I could have gone and not shot anything and I would have still been super stoked. Um, right. I've just wanted to see Alaska my whole life, you know, dreamed about it and just like, yep. oh gosh, for years and years and years thought about trying to get up there. Um, so that was, that was where my head was at going in. All right. So then you're, you're sleeping in this parking lot and you're, it's the eve <laughs> before you're, you're getting ready to take off on this epic adventure, yeah. right? Something that you're going to tell your children about, right? Something that you will never forget the first time you ever went to Alaska on this kick-ass caribou hunt with some, you know, some people that everybody knows, and especially if you're a hunter, yeah. did you have like opening day sleep? Like you couldn't sleep like opening day, like the first day you're going to go whitetail hunting or was this on a different level? You know, it was, it was a little weird. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what my sleep situation was. It was like that, that day, that day was like a crazy day because like I had to pack up every, all like Kylie left that morning. And so like, it was like saying goodbye to her and getting all of her stuff ready to go. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to see Kylie for three weeks. So it was kind of sad saying goodbye to her. Um, and then like, it was like this really strong sense of like loneliness all day because you know, for all this time I'd been with Kylie the whole time and our dogs and doing all this stuff. And I don't know, like you're, you're together all the time for like, you know, almost two months. Like, it's not like she goes to work and I go to work and then we see each other at night. It's like, we're with each other the entire day in this little camper. Mm -hmm. So then when it went from like all that interaction to like complete silence and nothing around, and I was just in the camper by myself, I was like, whoa, it just felt weird. So then that, that whole day just had, it was kind of weird. Um, but I was like busily trying to get stuff around and then I had to drive the camper and I'd been trying to find somewhere to keep the camper, like a, a campsite. Um, mm-hmm. I was hopeful, I was hoping to find a national forest pull off where I could park the camper, leave it and not to pay, um, yeah. and then come back and pick it up. But I couldn't find anywhere that I could get the camper up to that, um, was reasonably close. So I ended up finding out that I could park the camper at the airport. And, um, yeah, that night I just, I think I was just so busy getting stuff around. I didn't even really have like jitters at all or like nerves about the trip it was just like gotta get this done gotta get this done gotta get this done and by the time I had everything done it was super late anyways so I just crashed and then I think I was up at like 5 a.m. to uh to get in the airport and catch a flight right all right so how long did the trip take from the time you took off in Bozeman to the time you actually got to Alaska so our flight left like seven in the morning or something like that from Bozeman and then we flew from Bozeman to Seattle and then we had a long layover in Seattle, um, like two or three hours, and we met up with a couple of the guys. So there was a group of like five of us now that were there, and we just had like a big breakfast and talked about stuff. And then from Seattle, we flew to Fairbanks, Alaska. And I think yep. we got into Fairbanks around like 3 o'clock their time. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. It was a pretty long day. And then we got to Fairbanks, got all of our gear. And, man, when you travel with these guys – it is an unreal amount of gear that they take. Right. I think we had like 20, I don't don't know how many total bags we had, but I do know that when we left Bozeman, just for me, Giannis, and uh, Dirt, there was 18 bags that we checked there. And these are huge duffels or big Pelican cases full of camera equipment or podcast equipment or all sorts of stuff. 
Yeah. So there was probably 25, 30 bags that we picked up at Luggins and Fairbanks. We rented a tr- rented a van and a car, and then we drove from Fairbanks to another town, uh, which is where our transporter was. And uh, we we got in late that night and got dinner, and then um, I just passed out and uh, was ready for the early flight in the morning. Right. Okay. So. I mean, flying into Alaska itself had to be pretty kick-ass, right? I mean, how how far is that flight from Seattle to Alaska so or from, to, to Fairbanks? Yeah, so from Seattle to Fairbanks, I think, was like three and a half hours or something like that. Okay. And unfortunately, I didn't have a window seat. I wish I did, though, because like oh, I, was, gotcha. I was at an aisle seat, so I had to like look past two people through the window, and I was like over the, over the uh, wing. But yeah. even with all that... You could still see some just unbelievable mountains. Right. Just, you know, right. completely snow-covered, massive peaks, all these glaciers. You're flying. It, like, the whole trip, but especially when you're on the plane, I just felt like I was living, like, a Discovery Channel special. It's just like, yeah. I just, like, this This isn't a, I kept telling myself, this isn't a movie, Mark. This is life. Like, this is actually this is real, real life. Um, but, yeah. yeah, like, I'm flying over glaciers, like, massive tongues of ice coming off of these mountainsides. Um, just, just awesome. And, um, so right. that was, that was sweet. And then we touched down in Alaska and I was like, holy crap, I'm actually in Alaska. Like we landed yeah. there and then I'm like, Hey guys, uh, I just checked a major item off my life bucket list. So I'm just going to turn around <laughs> and go home now. <laughs> Made it to Alaska. Yeah. Um, so then the trans, then it's time to take off from the transporter plane, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that following morning and head into the bush, right? Yeah. And that was that was really cool. Um, so I was, some of the guys were being shuttled from the trans, from town to a wilderness airstrip on a bigger plane, like a four person plane. And then, then they would take a smaller plane from that airstrip to our camp. But the two heaviest people, I was one of the two heaviest people. Um, we got to fly straight from town all the way to our camp area um, in the little Super Cub. And the Super Cub is this really small plane. It's, like, kind of ridiculous um, yeah. seeing it for the first time. There's just the pilot in front and then you. And it's, like, basically the pilot's, like, sitting in my lap. Like, my legs are on either side of him, and it's just, like, glass all around me and one single propeller. And it looks like you could just, like, tip this thing over with your leg if you kicked it. Um, yeah. But, man, that was so, so cool. We we got it. We started flying, and... Very quickly, you, you pass town, and then it's just nothing. So first, it's all this is like muskeg, like swampy, tundra-y, marshy stuff that we're flying over. And, like, the colors are, like, these reds and yellows of these different willows and grasses and stuff. We're flying over all this stuff. And then you start coming into these hills and then eventually these big mountains. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of spruce trees and aspens are starting to change colors. And then these massive above tree line mountaintops, just barren rock, um, in stone. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of, um, the presidential range in, uh, New Hampshire, like the white mountains up there, Mount Washington, for anyone familiar with that area, this looked very much like that, like those types of mountains, but like, just imagine on a much, much bigger scale. But, um, yeah, we're flying over these in this little super cub, and we're flying, like, 50 feet or 100 feet off the ground. We're just buzzing around these ridge tops and curling around stuff, and you can just see everything. I mean, it was just a super, super cool flight, and that, again, was just, like, there's no way I can describe it in words to, like, convey just, right. like, I just, 
on this flight and the entire time I was just in awe of the scale of everything like the distance I could see and these massive mountains off in the distance and these other mountains that I'm right on top of and you know these beautiful rivers winding everywhere and 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 not a single sign of human intrusion or presence anywhere I mean it was just hundreds hundreds of miles of open space and I'm thinking as we're flying over here like how many bears out here are out here or moose or caribou or whatever it might be I mean, there's so much wildlife all around here so the flight in was super cool um <laughs> what was interesting though is i assumed like they would be dropping us off i don't know on like a gravel bar or a runway that they've like made somewhere out in the wilderness or something but that's not the case they land you on top of a mountain like a little ridge coming off of a mountainside <laughs> like it's like a 50 there's like a, maybe 50 yards of space and they just stop on a dime like they, they, they're flying down and then just like boom they're right there on the ground um but that's the case when the wind's good i was yeah. the first plane to come in there and we had like really windy conditions and it wasn't good so we go flying in and he's like all right that's where we're gonna be landing i'm like holy crap that's where we're gonna land and he circles <laughs> in and comes down and then he comes in and at the last second he pulls up and like cranks up and pulls up and then he yeah. looks back and he goes uh you don't get airsick do you I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> He's like, because this is going to be interesting. So yeah. he ended up having to do that like four or five times. So he makes these really tight turns where we're completely on our side, spins around, and then comes flying in and then tries to touch down on this 50-mile or 50-foot like circle on the ridge and can't do it, pulls up, does it over and over again. And meanwhile, while this is happening, there's he's scattering caribou off the mountain. Like there's caribou everywhere right where we're going to land. Um, so finally after like five times, he's able to get down. It was like, wow, that was something. And, um, and then, you know, for the rest of the, I don't know, another four or five hours or so, it was just basically them shuttling in the other guys and all of our equipment. And, um, you know, then it was setting up camp. And meanwhile, while this is all happening, we're seeing caribou coming over the hillside or on the mountaintop or skirting around us on the ridge. I mean, there's just caribou everywhere. And, um, we set up camp and uh, got ready, and we, we, we were going to go do a little scouting once we all got settled. So any questions so, before we move on? Yes, yes. <laughs> at, at this point, dude, like you're telling me you're living something that I've been dreaming about personally as well. Has reality at this point set in for you at all, or are you just kind of overwhelmed with everything that's happening? Are you saying like right now today or at that point? No, I mean like at that point. At that point. I mean, dude, you're living a National Geographic type yeah. television show at this point. You know, it's like, oh, well, shit, we can't land. Well, we're just going to skip off this mountain five times. <laughs> you had some of the most beautiful scenery in the entire world yeah, out, out, outside. And for me, I like every time – do you remember when we were coming back from that elk hunt? Yeah, and driving I was just that valley. Yeah, that and just I was out the window like a dog. Yes. Just <laughs> looking and remember and we were driving even through Wyoming and I was just like, oh, my God, look, there's an antelope. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh, oh, my God, look, look, look over there. Mark, Mark. And you're just like, buddy, I've been on this road like a 100 times. Right. <laughs> so but for you, this is this is virgin ground. You've never done anything like this. I mean, what was going through your head at this point? Like I would be shaking. Yeah. I mean, I, it was definitely like kind of like you were on that Wyoming drive. I was just like, there was so much going on that like at times like you get caught up in like the action. But I, I made a point like as much as I could throughout the whole trip 
to just like try to like remind myself like this is such a special thing take it in so I tried to find moments to like sit off by myself and just like just look around in silence or like just try to process it but I probably didn't even get to do that as much as I wanted to because like there was just stuff going on and the one thing you know probably my biggest anxiety going into this trip it wasn't like oh uh, am I gonna get in a plane crash like these things can be dangerous no it wasn't that it wasn't like worrying about grizzly bears it wasn't am I gonna kill a caribou like my biggest anxiety was probably it was more so like the, the people stuff like you know am am I gonna be a good fit with this group are they gonna like me uh you know I want to make sure I can you know pull my own weight and you know do all the stuff that I need to do um, I don't want them to feel like I don't know what I'm doing or anything like that. So it was like that people stuff. Um, yeah. so because of that, like I was constantly, and I would, I, I would do this anyways, but I was just especially trying to make sure I did a really great job of like always be helping, always doing something. Like I didn't want to yeah. be that guy that was like lazy and like sitting off by himself playing around. So it was yeah. like whenever other people were doing stuff, I was constantly trying to find a way that I could help out. So yeah. because of that, I was I maybe didn't get as much time to just like sit and like take stuff in. Cause I was like, can I help you move this bag? Can I help you cook this thing? Can I help do this yeah. thing? <laughs> um, so I was like running around like my, like a chicken with his head cut off, just trying to make sure I was, you know, doing my part. Um, but still, still, I mean, there was still plenty of time to, to soak it all in. So yeah, it was just awesome. unreal. And we, you know, once we got everything set up, we were going to go out and do some scouting because that first day when you fly in, you can't hunt on the day you fly in. Yep. So we finally got our stuff around and, you know, now I'm learning a little about the TV side of things too. So they got me all mic'd up and they kind of talked through some of the things they like to do and how they like to do this stuff. And, um, we start hiking up the mountain and we were basically going to hike up to a high point and sit up there in glass and just try to get a, get an idea of where these caribou are coming through and where we might want to go back to the next morning. And, um, I, I found like at first when you've got like you know, there's me and Steve and Doug up front, and then there's these other two guys behind you walking along, and then there's two cameramen that are, like, running ahead of you or walking circles around you or, like, standing right next to you with the camera in your face. And a couple times I almost, like, started to laugh. <laughs> it just felt so <laughs> absurd. So I had to, like, catch myself. Like, I, I got, like, a half smirk on my face. <laughs> like, keep it together, Kenyon. Yeah, um, act like you've been there before. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, the scouting was good. We saw a lot of caribou. And, um, you know, just got to have some good conversations with the guys. And then on our way back to camp that evening, Yana spotted a grizzly bear just underneath our camp, just off the ridge. So we all go walking down the ridge a little bit closer, and we're watching him with our binos and stuff. Just the, one of the most beautiful grizzly bears I've ever seen. Um, he was, like, pure gold, like sheeny, yeah. blonde gold, like beautiful coat. Um, and he was just feeding on blueberries and stuff. There's berries all over the place and um he's feeding on these blueberries and then he starts angling his way up the ridge getting closer and closer and closer and we're all geeking out on it loving watching him but he gets to maybe like 100 yards 90 yards and steve's like you know we probably ought to get this guy out of here especially because of how close we were to camp um so he starts yelling making some noise and the bear looks up finally and notices up there but instead of like spooking off he's just curious so he just starts running towards us (laughs) cool yeah (laughs) so then steve's like picking up rocks and throwing rocks towards it and yelling and finally he got to maybe i don't know 65 or 70 yards or somewhere around that ballpark and then finally he does like all right realize i don't want to mess with these guys and he turns and runs off but it was just a really cool 
you know, encounter. And yeah. like now I'm like, all right, I've got like my Alaska, like this is everything I want. I've, I've seen tons of caribou. I had my grizzly bear encounter. I'm camped out on top of this windswept rocky ridge and I can see like hundreds of miles maybe in every direction. That's all I need. I'm good. <laughs> right, right. So then while you were on this little scouting mission, did you guys locate some caribou and were you putting a plan together on how to attack it that next day? Yeah, so so here's the thing with these caribou is like they're they're constantly moving and it was just like there's always caribou. So Yeah. We kind of identified like a general path, like a travel path. Like basically where we were situated, there was a almost like a pass in a chain of mountains and some ridges that kind of kind of like deer are funneled through topography by saddles in a mountain or something like that, or saddles on a yeah. ridge. There was a series of saddles and ridges that were funneling this migration of caribou past our ridge. Um, so we located this general area where there's just constantly caribou trickling through and... Um, you know, we knew that these these caribou are there one day, they're gone the next. So there's going to be different yeah. caribou. But assuming that the migration continued, assuming that we weren't at the end of the migration, we knew that they should be back there the next day. So we, we found this general area, and then the plan was the next day to just go back up to this little glassing knob and watch again. But that was that was as, as firm as a, of game plan as we had, but it's kind of all you needed. Um, I mean, yeah. this is the most absurd hunting I've ever had in my life. Like, it was unlike anything else, unlike elk hunting, unlike deer hunting, like, by it ten times, in that there's just, there's constantly animals, you're constantly watching animals, and um, it wasn't a question, it, it, to be honest, very quickly we realized as soon like as soon as we realized like okay yes we're in the middle of the migration it's not like the end of it like we're in it it wasn't a question of if we were going to shoot caribou it was just which gotcha. one you wanted to shoot cuz there were right. so many but i will say what we found is that you know when i when i went into this when um Giannis was like telling me yeah you know there's we're going to be hopefully intercepting the migration um and when i started thinking about a caribou migration i was thinking of like discovery channel stuff where you see yeah. like these massive amoebas of like 20,000 or 30,000 animals <laughs> all together, like pouring right. across an area. It's not, it right. wasn't like that. Um, it was like, here's a group of five, here's a group of 20, here's a group of 50, here's a group of 15. And they're all kind of strung out. Or you could like sit on a mountainside and you could look on one ridge and you see a group of 20 there, a group of 50 there, a group of 10 there. But like any different direction you looked, you'd see a group of caribou there. And they're constantly moving through or they bed for a little bit or they mill around feeding for a little bit. But it wasn't like this giant wave of them. It was just this never ending kind of trickle and flow of different size groups coming through. Um, right. So that was what we started to see on day one, and we continued to see that the rest of the way. Okay, so you so is this one of those things where you guys just kind of you you found out where they were, and then you drop off the mountain to go intercept the basic line of the path of the migration? Then yeah, and there, and there were, you know there it wasn't like one single line. Like there was lots of different little directions right. and stuff that different groups of them would go. But yeah, I mean when it came down to it, days you know the the three days that we were actually hunting that basically ended up being what we did we had this general glassing section that we would go to and we would explore different areas but many times we ended up back there and you could just watch over this large area and you just sit in the hillside with spotting scopes and binoculars and you just pick out different groups and you eyeball that group you find a different group eyeball that group find a different group eyeball that group and um because there were so many animals you know steve was like we should be pretty picky about what we're going to shoot i mean 
Yeah. There's no reason to go off and shoot the first thing you see. So he kind of described the main things that you're looking for in a good and mature bull. And with a big, you know, a big mature caribou bull is going to have, so they kind of differentiate on a caribou. There's like these tines and like there's the up there, there's the tops and there's the fronts. Um, so the fronts are like those things that obviously come out from the front, like these different little arms yeah. and hands of antler that comes out right above the, kind of like a brow tine type thing. Yep. And, um, and then there's the tops, which are like, you know, the, the, the tall main beam that goes up and then you've got those top tines up there. So a good bull would have like long tops, like maybe palmated tops. He'd have back scratcher points, which are these little kind of flyers that come off the back of that big main beam. And he'd have, you know, big sweeping fronts with good tines and maybe a shovel or two, which are these like kind of palmated, I don't even know how to describe it, but, um, yeah. In the picture of my bull, you can see one. I've I've got a single shovel on mine. You can see this flat kind of palmated vertical set of antlers that comes like straight off his forehead. So we were looking for that, and then also you're looking at you know in relative to all the other caribou. So you need to like establish a context because they all look big. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you kind of need to look at a bunch of them and then I compare this one to that one, this one to that one. Um, so very quickly, I realized like we were going to be pretty picky. And, uh, so day one, you know, we, we get up, we make some, you know, granola or oatmeal in the morning and coffee, get around. And then we head back up the mountain and we're sitting there and we're, we're seeing all these caribou again and we're glassing and figuring stuff out. And finally we spot a caribou that, that, you know, looked good. And Steve was like, yeah, that's, that's a good one. So he grabbed Doug and he's like, Doug, let's, let's go after this one. So they go taking off after that one. And, they took the two cameramen, and then myself, Brody, and Giannis stayed up on the mountainside so that we didn't have seven people trying to chase these caribou, and we watched and glassed right. from above. And they made a move on this group of caribou, but these guys, these bulls were moving so fast across the terrain that Steve and the crew, they kind of angled where we saw them. Yeah. But within moments of like them starting to hike after them, these caribou were past that point and moving way far to the left. So we watched from above and watched them miss the caribou by a mile and they're gone and then they continued stalking in thinking they're getting on them and then they finally realized that they weren't but another group of caribou had moved in and a really another nice new bull came through and Doug ended up not shooting that one but we thought maybe he would but basically that whole morning was was watching that happen and um they didn't end up shooting anything but super cool just watching it all happen and meanwhile I was just sitting up on the mountain watching other animals and just kind of soaking it in and taking pictures and stuff and Eventually they come back up and we talk about what happened, et cetera, et cetera, and we're BSing and stuff. And while we're kind of getting shit around again, I'm glassing and I spot a new group of bulls that popped out over another hill across the ridge. And I'm like, oh man, there's some really good ones up there. And after everybody looked, like, yep, there's definitely, there's a really good one. And so he's like, your turn, Mark. And at this point, it was like a roller coaster, um, yeah. is the only way I could describe it. And I was kind of hoping that I wouldn't shoot one early like I was th- hoping I could shoot a caribou on the last day you know so you work yeah. really hard and like have that whole experience and then it finally happens um and also I again to like my my only anxieties again were like related to like the people related stuff I just didn't know what the process was going to be like right you know right. with the show how so, did they determine who got first shot or was it just kind of a shoot from the hip thing so I think Steve, I think Steve was just going to bounce back and forth between me and Doug on stocks, and then once we sh- got a chance, then he would then he would shoot one. Um, so Doug got his first stock that didn't go. So then you know I, my name got called for the second stock. Um, 
but I don't know if I was like mentally ready because I told Doug, I'm like, hey, Doug, I want, I want, I want, you should have the first, you should have the first shot. You know, you were invited on this trip first. I was a late addition. You've been thinking about this for a year. Um, I want to make sure you get one. So I thought, you know, I want him to shoot one. And then also, like, I kind of wanted to let someone else go through the whole thing and I could observe, like, you know, because not, it's not like hunting on your own, you know? Yeah. You, when you're hunting on your own, you make all the decisions, you do it your way, um, you gut the deer your way, you process the deer your way, and there's no one like, you know, no one else to worry about. In this situation, it was like, you know, I was, it was like I was living in someone else's house. Do you know how that is? Like, if you go visit someone yep. else's house and you're there staying at their place, like, you're following their rules. You got to put stuff in the place they want to put stuff. Like, you're not going to sit on their couch in the underwear. Right. And like, I get, right. I, I have like anxiety, I have a small amount of anxiety when I stay at other people's house. Cause like, I don't want to do something the wrong way or I don't want to mess up their stuff or whatever it might be. So I had like those kinds of feelings. Cause I just didn't, you know, you just don't know what the norms are. So for example, like if I were to shoot one, um, should I just dig in and start gutting it right away? Like I would, or does Steve do the gutting because you know, that's how he likes it on the show or like, you know, so all these like little questions or the things that were like giving me anxiety so all that to say that now all of a sudden it's my turn to go and I was like not mentally prepared like I was thinking Doug was going to be the shooting today and I would observe yeah. and but no it's like go time so like this whole time I'd been clicking you know going up the hill of the roller coaster click 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 going higher and higher and higher and then like I'm at the top and then Steve says all right Mark let's go now I'm just off the edge flying down and from that point on it was just a blur so we go running down the mountain got two cameramen behind me running and we're like sprinting down because these bulls were coming across the ridge and then they went behind this big hill but they're going to come over this hill and drop into this flat kind of basin and we have to intercept them at that basin because if we don't get to the basin before it's not really a basin it's more of a bench if we don't get to that bench on the ridge before they do they're going to see us so we have to get there before they come over top of this hill so we're racing our way down there and I'm huffing and puffing and cruising down there we finally get to this little knob looking over the bench and we, we drop down and start glassing and we don't see the caribou. Um, so now it's like, oh crap, did they like go around the corner, go another way? But you know, a minute of glassing maybe. And all of a sudden, this is when I did get that discovery channel moment where like you just saw like trees pop out from the top of the hill and slowly these trees became heads and then necks and then bodies as all these bulls <laughs> came over the hill and then they just started piling and they were in one big massive group of maybe like 50 or 60 or something I don't know something like that so this yeah. big group coming down the mountain and right in the front is this big snowy white maned big bull and um, so I lay down I put my pack in front of me put my rifle on the pack and um, there's there's several nice bulls. So I'm not exactly sure which of these bulls is like the best one. But Steve's like it's that it's that front one. And I'm like looking at him. And like he looks really good, but the one behind it looks really good. So they're coming across. They come down the hill. They're coming across the bench. And um, I look over at Steve. I'm like, hey Steve, do you think we should try to cut? Should we try to crawl, kind of cut a little farther to the left so we can intersect them at a closer distance? Um, and he's like, well, how far are you comfortable shooting? And I'm like, well, I'd like, I'd like a shot like 200 yards would make me super happy, 200 or less, yeah. because you know, I don't gun hunt. I gun hunt like a couple days a year, um, right. and when I do gun hunt, I'm up in northern Michigan where the longest shot you're gonna get is like 60 or 70 yards. <laughs> right. So right. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a long range shooter. I'm not a long range rifle shooter. I've been practicing at 100 and 200 yards with this rifle that Giannis was letting me borrow when I was out in Montana, 
and I, I kind of went into it saying, yeah, I know lots of guys take way longer shots than that. I know like 300 or 400 yard shots are like the norm for a lot of guys. But for me to be comfortable, I'd rather do 200. Like I just, I don't need to stretch it. Um, yeah. But Steve's like, well, what do you, what do you want to shoot at? I'm like, well, I'd be happy if it's 200 or less. And he's like, well, look at your scope and look at the two hash marks down. That's 300. Use that. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to. Oh, that, that, that easy. Yeah. It's just that easy. Yeah. And I'm like. <laughs> I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to like argue with him about it. Um, but in my head, I'm like, shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For, fortunately though. And I just want to say up front, like before uh, any further, I want to preface that like everyone and Steve too, everyone was just like awesome about, you know, Steve wasn't pressuring me into doing anything I didn't want to do. And I felt super comfortable and everything was great. But, but regardless of like how, you know, how great they were about it. I still felt like pressure. You know what I mean? Like they weren't putting any pressure on me, but I was putting pressure on myself. Right. Is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, so Steve's like, you know, just put that second hash on there. (laughs) Um, luckily they kept angling closer and I'm kind of waiting and they're moving pretty quick. Um, and then I'm like, uh, my guard, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot one night when they stop. Steve's like, well, they're not going to stop. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap, you're right, because they're, they're moving on a pretty good clip. And then he's like, make sure you don't shoot two, because um, there's, you know, they're, they're, they're all bunched together, and they're kind of coming in and out. And I'm like, oh, geez. So I'm taking a longer shot than I've taken often, and they're moving, they're on the move. <laughs> and they're, like, pacing in between. You know, they're all, they're all bunched up. And I'm like, geez, this is a debacle. Right. <laughs> but, like, in the moment, I didn't really have time to, like, think through this. It was just, like, this is a situation. This is happening. So, long story short, got my gun rested on my pack. This is all happening. I'm going to be taking this shot. So I get the scope on it, and um, I ranged. I got 235, I think, was the last range I took. So I put it right on him, and uh, and then just shot. Like it just happened fast. Like I was on him; yeah. he was moving. As soon as he came out from um, behind another one, and I had an open shot, I shot. Yeah. And instantly, you could see impact. Like you could see, I hit him. He stands there, and then like, and then he like almost immediately lays down. So I'm like, oh, awesome! Like yeah. he's going down. It's done. But then like the like, it's not like I'm not celebrating. I'm not excited. I'm just like, whew. And then I'm watching, but he hasn't like keeled over yet. He just lays there, and then he stands back up, and I'm like, "Oh God, no! What happened?" So then I put another shot on him, and this time, he goes down, lays down again, and then does some kicks, and and he dies. Um, but it, it it was like a longer process than I would have liked. I would have liked if it was like one shot drops and he's instantly dead. You know that yeah. that shoulder shot that just knocks him right down. Um, so like I'm feeling like a little bit like oh crap I didn't have a great shot, blah blah. blah. Uh, but long story short, after a little while we walked down there, check him out. My first shot was back a little bit. My second shot was in the heart, knocked him. You know, took care of him right, right there. Um, yeah. But you know, I think that first one it was just the chaos of the moment, the nerves, the moving shot, all these things that maybe um, weren't ideal. Um, led to a not ideal first shot luckily the second one i was able to recompose and, and make it happen but uh, yeah. but i felt long uh, the reason i mentioned all this is that it in that moment i felt like horrible like i wasn't excited all i felt was like horrible about that shot um like i was embarrassed i felt like you know all these guys watching this stuff's being filmed and like you know yeah. steve this guy i really respect I, I would i would like to like you know show that i'm like adequate um 
like what does he think about my bad first shot like all these things like running through my head and so like I kind of am bummed with myself for not being able to enjoy the moment and like instead like in my head I was like just all these anxieties um but looking back on it now like I can remember like what an incredible moment I just remember walking up to this annual and just being like in shock and awe of like just the size and the beauty um and just like wow this this happened just right. um the whole thing was was a crazy roller coaster of like emotions and um I just killed a caribou on my first day of actually hunting caribou um yeah. and just big beautiful I mean the the coat is so silky and like full and this mane I just kept putting my fingers in that white mane on his neck um just amazing and interesting caribou are the only ungulate hooved animal in North America that has a fully um fur coated nose it doesn't have that rubbery nose like a deer or an elk or something like that really it's totally totally covered in hair um you know because of what a cool environment they live in so i remember touching the nose and being like wow this is just like so cool kind of like a mixture of like peach fuzz and like my goatee maybe covering the (laughs) nose (laughs) so uh, and then these antlers, I mean, just like unreal how big these things are. Another fun yeah. fact about caribou is they have the largest antlers in proportion to body size of any North American ungulate. Oh, cool. So, so yeah. So, so it was wild, man. When you, when, you know, the deer's dead or the, the, the caribou's dead, you, you are now able to celebrate this kill and you walk up to it and you just – you're you're looking at it. Uh, what was what was going through your mind? You know, at the time where you bent over and you laid your hands on this animal for the very first time. You know, it was it was it was the two things. It was it was still the 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 internal turmoil over uh, right. over how the actual thing went down, um, mixed with just um, just like wow. I just kept saying wow. Just like the whole right. experience, every everything about this trip was like overwhelming, like the landscape, the wildlife, um, you know, just all the other things surrounding it was just just overwhelming sense of just like bigness and like awe. So that's kind of what I was feeling. It was just like shock and awe and um, and appreciation too. I mean, sitting there yeah. like I, I you know, I always try to do this, um, you know, just kind of thank the animal or or whomever whatever it might be whatever power is above that brought this moment to to be um and so i I tried to do i did that and just was like this is just such an incredible blessing to be here and to have this animal so just a lot of all those things just kind of a huge mixed pot of all sorts of stuff going on now how big because you've killed an elk before so how big was this caribou compared to an elk that you shot? And then did any of those guys know roughly how old this, this bull was that you shot? So relative to a bull elk, a bull caribou is smaller. So a big bull caribou might be like 400 pounds or 450 or I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe a really big one would be bigger than that. Um, you know, bull elk could be, you know, 700 pounds, 800 pounds, something like that. Um, so definitely smaller than my bull elk from a body perspective, but still really big. Like it, and also like right. because of the low quality diet of the food available for uh, caribou, they eat just lichen and stuff like that. These little tiny lichens up on the mountainside because of that diet, 
they have this massive, massive stomach, like this huge, bloated stomach. So, like, his belly yeah. just looked like a beach ball or bigger, like just massive. Um, yeah. So really interesting in that regard. But the antlers were much bigger. So the antlers were bigger than my elk. So the antlers were huge, but the body was maybe a little bit smaller. Um, now, as far as how old this uh, caribou was, we didn't really know, but it was definitely mature, like definitely a big mature bull. If that means four years old or six years old or, or how old, I'm not sure. I know, and nobody there seemed to be sure either. Um, but definitely one of the most mature bulls we'd seen. Like it, up, up until like the last day, this was probably the top one or two largest caribou we saw the whole time until the last day. Awesome. So, so yeah, man. And then, you know, like I mentioned earlier, then I had, you know, those worries about, okay, now what's the process, you know, like, should I get going on gutting him right away? Or do I need to wait for the camera crew or does Steve start? And then I help. So all that kind of stuff, you know, had me uncomfortable, but made it through, you know, and Steve kind of led the way and stuff and I helped out and, you know, we broke it down and all that was fine and got them all gutted and, quartered and packed away and that was cool you know again similar to when I killed my elk I was just like so like overwhelmed by the size of everything in there like just gutting this animal so different than gutting a deer like you could stick your arm all the way to your shoulder and not get to the esophagus Um, (laughs) so that was interesting and just this massive massive balloon of a stomach but I got all that taken care of packed everything up and then we brought all the meat maybe 50 60 yards away from the gut pile and set it down because we still had a couple hours of daylight left and we figured we'd sit up on the mountain and glass and maybe find another one for doug so we we did that we got in the mountainside and we're looking around for for caribou and stuff and again i spot something off in the distance and it's not a caribou though it's a big old grizz yeah spot another grizz and a cub so this is a big sow. She was like huge and brown and like patchy, very patchy, like different colored tufts of skin or hair all over. But her, her, her cub was very much like the other grizzly we saw, like really sheeny, golden. Um, and man, he was just having a great time. He was like doing somersaults down the side of the mountain, like rolling over <laughs> and over. And at one point he ran over to a caribou shed and started like wrestling with the shed. Um, it was awesome. And so we started making bets. Like, she was running. They were running down the mountain. Like, they were a long ways off, like a mile away from where we were maybe, maybe further. But they were running towards us. And Steve was like, what do you think? Do you think she could possibly smell that gut pile? Like, and so we started, like, placing bets on whether or not she knew about that gut pile. Like, why would she be running right down towards us this whole way? Like, a long ways. So we started wondering if she was going to come all the way to that gut pile. So we watched her for, like, an hour coming down the hill. Um, but then finally she made it to a berry patch and then they, they hung up at the berry patch. They never did make it to the gut pile, but, um, they ate some berries. We watched them for a long time. And finally she drops behind the hill and starts angling again, closer towards the gut pile and stuff. And then we're like, all right, you know, we should probably get our meat and get out of here before they do discover it. Um, so we hiked back to the meat, loaded up and then did the long hike back with a heavy pack. And that was that was a good load. I had a back quarter, front quarter, and the skull and antlers on my back. Um, and I'm, I'm glad it wasn't like a six-mile hike because that was a pretty heavy load. <laughs> so what did you do with the meat? Because you you guys were dropped in, right? There wasn't a plane still there, was there? Yeah, no no planes, no anything. We were just out there all by ourselves. But it was, it was cold. It was cool out there. Okay. So, we just, you know, we had everything in game bags, you know, like uh, cheesecloth type game bags, and we hiked back towards camp, and on a hillside above camp, 
we just kind of made like a cat a meat cache and just stacked everything up there against the antlers so that they could get air to the to all sides of the meat and yeah. um you know during the day it was probably in the 40s or 50s probably 40s high 40s most oh, okay. days and super windy it was very windy um yeah. and then at night you know it could be down to the 20s or low 30s or something so it was plenty cool enough for that meat to be fine there um and then that night we we cut off a hunk of that caribou meat and sliced it real thin and fried it up and eat, we all eat a little bit of it and how did that taste really good really good just like compared hot to, buttery compared to your elk you know so I, I don't really know how to compare it yet um gotcha relatively similar um i don't know how I, I, different yes different but i don't can't quite put my finger on how to articulate the difference um but pretty similar to elk and deer um maybe it just felt especially good because i was eating it on the side of a mountain right so um so yeah man great great first day of hunting and you know my anxieties aside like the stress around that unnecessary like i didn't need to be stressed out about stuff because you know nobody was giving me a hard time about anything but i was i was putting that on myself um but all that aside it was just like unbelievable super super cool experience seeing the bears seeing all those animals actually getting to kill caribou packing them off the mountain um just just amazing so that night it was just kind of like in awe of all that and um and then uh the next morning i wake up it's day two well day three that we're out there i open up my tent door and the very first thing i see is a grizzly bear and cub in our camp (laughs) did you poop your pants a little bit (laughs) no but i was like whoa (laughs) good morning um and like right away i'm like grizzly in camp i yell it out everyone's still in their tents like still like sleeping and we're like getting around like grizzly in camp and then when i see this grizzly is right next to like the tent where the crew was sleeping so like the yeah. other the camera guys so then i start hollering at it, try to get it away and then luckily he or she and the cub look at me and then they bump off the hill and yeah. they drop over the side but over there where these grizzlies ran to one of the crew members had a separate tent he didn't sleep with the rest of them because um he has night terrors actually um so he so uh so he he sleeps in a separate tent just so he doesn't wake people up so i see these uh bears go run over the hill and then all of a sudden i hear him yelling i'm like oh no like they ran right into him yeah and um fortunately they ran like 30 yards of him but then when he started yelling they turned and ran the other way so no issues but it could have been it could have been hairy because you know a sow in a cub type situation like that is never good to surprise, and yeah. she was she was right in there close to their tents. So that was an interesting start to the day. Um, and I forgot to mention another crazy thing that happened was our very first night there, in the middle of the night, like amazingly heavy winds came through. Like I thought my tent was gonna get like, get crushed to the ground or like the rain flower was gonna get ripped off. Like I woke up several times in the night like so loud my tent is like pushed down over top of my head. Um, I got thought for sure stuff was going to get ripped out. Fortunately, we because of how windy it had been during the day, we didn't we staked everything, but then we also put big rocks over all the stakes too. Um, yeah. So that saved the day for our tents. But the the crew they slept in these big teepees, um, like teepee style tents. There's two of them, and one of them like half of the stakes all came ripping out. So those couple of those guys had to wake up in the middle of the night and were like out in these gale force winds trying to restake these tents. And then there's another guy that was sleeping solo in one of them. And that one in the middle of the night, like all the stakes came out in the middle pole, like came out. So he had to, for like two hours, 
sit holding with all his might onto the center pole to keep the teepee oh, from flying away. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, he was yelling, but nobody else could hear him. So he had a rough night. Man, um, that is crazy. Yeah, it was – I mean, like, cra- I've never been in heavier winds in a tent by far. I mean, it was it was out of this world. Um, so that was that was the tent. And then, you know, day number three of the trip, we started with the grizzly encounter in the morning – and then just more of the same the rest of the day. We just watched hundreds and hundreds of caribou, just like incredible seeing all these animals interact and flowing off the mountains and passing through. And you just glass all these different bulls up and look at them and watch them. Lots of times you see these bulls fighting and stuff. Um, really cool. And then that day, Doug got a shot at one. He killed that bull and we packed that one off the mountain. That night it started to rain. We recorded a podcast episode for steve's podcast um and then the third day same deal hiking all over the place glassing all over the place um found a big bull that steve wanted to shoot it was really far away um so this time a couple guys stayed back and then me and steve and the camera guys decided to go after him and then we kind of went on a kind of wild goose chase like steve wanted to go after this once we go drop way off this mountain down this deep drainage and then we get to the bottom of the drainage, and we spot some new bulls up at the top of the ridge again that looked really good. So we go all the way back to the top, like sprinting up the side of this mountain. We get situated there, and these bulls drop down in front of us, and then Steve didn't like them so much. So he's like, let's go back after the original one. So then we go all the way back down to the bottom of the drainage. And then at this point, we spot another group of bulls. Um, <laughs> and this one's halfway up that mountain, and Steve ended up taking one of those. But um, super nice bull. And then it was just a heck of a pack out of that drainage because now we're at the bottom of this steep ravine, and we had to go straight up this really steep face that like that load nearly killed me because <laughs> um, it was I took a back quarter and then I also found a big moose shed like a big moose shed, so I strapped yeah. that on my pack so I had a heavy load, and um, this was a very steep uh, hill. So that one, I was, like, finally feeling it. Like, this is our third caribou we've packed out in three days. And that one, I finally was like, okay, I'm getting tired. But uh, fortunately, Steve must have been feeling it a little bit, too, because he was taking breaks. And so uh, I was able to take breaks with him, and that that was good. So, awesome. And then that night, we had, like, our meal scene. Um, and, uh, you know, because usually on the, on the Meat Eater show, they do, like, a meal scene where they cook up something they killed. <clears throat> And, um, so we did an Asian hot pot. So like this big boiling pot of like Asian broth mixture with like onions and carrots and I don't know, all these different things in there. And then we sliced up caribou heart and caribou backstrap and ptarmigan heart and ptarmigan breast. So ptarmigan's kind of like a, an Arctic like grouse type bird. Did you guys shoot that while you were out there? Yeah, I shot one and Steve shot one and Brody shot one, I think. Um, oh, cool. So, so yeah, we, we sliced all that up, and then you skewer, you skewer a little slice of this meat on a little wooden stick, and then you dip it in that broth for, like, 15 seconds, let it just sear really quick, and then you take it out, dip it in the sauce, and eat it with your fingers, and holy crap, that was amazing. So all that had to be packed in, right, with that plane. So yeah. All, so all the vegetables and all the utensils. So the production of the Meat Eater television show – Let's say if it was just you and me going out there to drop, we'd probably have, you know, 75% less gear to take just because of the production, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they had so much camera equipment and other stuff. Um, yeah, just a lot of stuff. So quite a quite a production. But it made for 
comfortable, you know, living situation out there because we had like a little tarp over our little meal area so we could be, you know, sheltered from the rain on that day. It was raining all day um, and the wind a little bit. And it's a nice little nook to sit in there and eat every day and good food, like different than like when we go backpacking or stuff. Like they had like real sandwiches and um, we had mountain houses for dinner. But they, what I really liked is they brought a massive bag of, like, candy bars. So there was, like, dozens of full-size <laughs> Snicker bars and Kit Kats and stuff. So so we ate pretty decent considering. And um, So you were comfortable. This wasn't like a, a real – it was it was roughing it because you were way out isolated. But from a from a food and com- – like, uh, you, it wasn't like you were on a spike camp out in the backcountry, like, with just – the meal for the day, right? Yeah, we had a little more food than I'm used to. Otherwise, it's similar, but the food situation, we had more food available than usual. Like, well, there's, like they brought apples, so that was nice. So we had, like, lunch meat for sandwiches and apples and then, like, granola bars and stuff like that, candy bars. And then every night, you know, you'd have a mountain house me- meal. And in the mornings, yeah, they had they had they brought bagels. Like, they'd fry bagels in a pot or um, there was some oatmeal, stuff like that. So so eating, it was fancier than, than my elk hunting, that's for sure. Awesome. Awesome. And that was and that was it. The next day we were supposed to get picked up early in the morning from the plane by the planes, but they ended up not coming till like super late. So we just hung out. We we packed up camp and hung out all day on the mountainside, walking around or napping or reading or goofing around. And like I think the planes finally got there like six or seven at night or something. Um, and it was oh, wow. it started raining. It was raining and cloudy and windy and all that kind of stuff. So it took them a while to be able to get us, but they finally did. Got us out of there late that night, and on the flight back, so on the Super Cub flight back to the town, I saw 30 to 40 moose. Like, it was insane. Like, moose everywhere. Wow. So that was sweet. Like, big, big old paddled moose bulls. I mean, just, it was sweet. Right. Awesome. So, yeah, dude. So, so when you were out there, um, you know, certain times of the year, Alaska, you know, Alaska or Northern Hemisphere, even into Canada and whatnot, they have longer days. What was your, what was the day like out there? How, how many hours of darkness was there? Yeah, so it was like daylight by about six in the morning, maybe a touch before six, and then it was daylight till almost ten o'clock at night. So okay. pretty, pretty darn long days. Okay. Um, so what that gives you about eight hours of darkness. The rest of the day was daylight. Um, yeah. And you know another thing, I didn't really get to see it, but there we did have decent northern lights a couple nights there. Um, oh, cool! I woke up my last night. I set an alarm to try to see them, and I did see them, but just like little slivers of it. Like you'd see it's almost like a green string wavering in the sky. Um, yeah. But I never got to see it. The whole sky lit up. But I, I did hear they got some good time lapse footage of it. So. Oh, cool! Hopefully, we'll get to see that. <laughs> the last night though was funny. They had a time lapse set up right by my tent, and I didn't know it. So I wake up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., to go see the northern lights. So I wake up, get out of my tent, walk out of my tent, take a piss, look up at the sky, look for the northern lights, kind of see it, and then go to bed. Well, the next day, I ended up taking a piss right in front of the time-lapse camera. <laughs> so your junk is going to be on the next Mediator po- uh, <laughs> show. Possibly. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I pointed, hopefully I pointed the other way. <laughs> <laughs> so... You made it back to civilization, right? I mean, while you're out there, after the you know after the fact, after you've had this experience, you you, you got some time where you're in a plane, you're coming back to the civilization, um, you're just kind of 
you're 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 thinking about everything that just happened. Has this sparked any ideas from you as far as any additional adventure hunting scenarios that you that you want to take, uh, whether it's in the states or somewhere else? Well, I definitely want to go back to Alaska again. Like I as yeah. as often as I can, I'd like to get up there. Um, yeah. Because it's just, I mean, we were, we were talking about this on Steve's podcast about the fact that in the lower 48, like we are fighting now today to fix mistakes that were made, you know, 150 years ago still, or, you know, 50 years ago, whatever it might be, like whatever it might be to wildlife populations and or habitat. Like we're fighting to try to protect the last vestiges of wilderness and open space that we have and to you know, continue to rebound populations or protect them at the, at the place that we've been able to get these, these animals back to now. But in the lower 48, it's like repair mode kind of, you know, we, we've right. really screwed things up here and we're just trying to make it a little bit better and fix the, the small things we've been able to recover so far in Alaska. It's still for the most part, like it was 200 years ago for I mean the large portion of it is relatively intact relatively still wild relatively you know in harmony with how it should be and we're now it's just like don't screw this up so right. we, we screwed up in the lower 48 and we're trying to fix it and, and keep what we've got left in Alaska like, we've got this incredible thing still this public land and this wilderness and these places that are just amazing um, we've got this sliver of what it used to be still there and um it just has reminded me of how important it is to keep that the way it is. Um, just knowing that there's somewhere that is still like that today, it's, it's very reassuring for me. Like it just, it's good to know there's still a wild place. It's good to know that you can go somewhere and be hundreds of miles from anybody else and be surrounded by grizzlies and wolves and caribou and the night and, and the Northern lights. It is like good for my soul to know that that is there and available. Um, and I just want to fight really hard to make sure it stays that way. Amen, man. Amen. So, so any other takeaways from from this trip? Uh, I mean, not necessarily just the adventure and emotional standpoint, but anything else that was just really cool or, you know, something that you want to tell the listeners that they should try to do something like this or I guess Mark Kenyon's final thoughts. Yeah. So final thoughts. I think first and foremost – you know the trip was incredible from you know, being there and the wildlife and the landscape and killing a caribou and getting all this great meat all those things were amazing but just as important if not maybe even more important was like and i think this comes down to so often is the people too like just the group of guys i was with on this trip were were so great they were so welcoming to me they were so much fun to be around um and like so I just want like I appreciate that so much. I appreciate the fact that Steve and the guys invited me to go on this trip. Um just an unbelievable opportunity and I can never thank all of them enough. Um just the coolest guys in the world. So I would say number 1, if you are not watching the Meat Eater TV show or listening to the Meat Eater podcast, you really should be. They're doing awesome work. The guys behind the scenes are amazing guys, super fun guys. Um so check out like Make sure you're following Dirt Myth on Instagram. The guy takes some incredible photos. Um, Chris Gill, follow Chris Gill on Instagram. He's another ter- terrific camera guy. 
Um, Brody Henderson and Giannis Patelis just did an awesome job of like keeping the train on the tracks as far as the whole production and everything. And then Steve, I mean, I think most of most everyone listening knows who Steve Rinella is, but um, it was really cool to get to spend more time with him. And he's someone that I've looked up to for a long time. I've, um, you know, modeled a lot of the ways that I try to communicate things. Um, kind of around the way he has because I think he's just done a tremendous job of representing the hunting community in a positive light and I think he's influenced the hunting community in a really positive way moved us in a direction that I think is very important so um, man I'm just gonna continue to be appreciative of what he's doing and it was neat to be able to learn from him in person and um, also these dudes are way goofier in person than you might expect like just like constantly laughing about stupid things and like making up songs Steve's got nicknames for everybody and he starts making up songs about different people um, or like we were doing like handstand offs like seeing who could do handstand for the longest time or who could do planks for the longest time or all sorts of goofy stuff like that so just like a really good time from a personal standpoint too um, awesome. but then as to other final thoughts I think just to what I said there a second ago this just reminded me again of, of how fortunate and blessed we are that you know our forefathers and people that came before us had the foresight to protect some of these places and leave them as they were or you know or that did things to allow our wildlife populations to recover in the lower 48 or to keep them great as they are in Alaska Um, so I would just I would encourage everyone to a educate yourself on this like read about the history of these places read about these wild places learn about what we have here realize that you as an american have access to just this you have access to a unbelievable swath of landscape and wildlife and experience like it's there for you you don't need to pay anything to go in there and do these things um yeah it takes planning yeah it takes a lot of work yeah it takes some money to get to places um but it's there for you so go see these places experience these places and then um you know when needed, stand up for these places. Um, you know, call your congressman, write letters, tell your friends and family these places are important. Um, so I think that's that's what I would say. Yeah, very, 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 very important. So yeah, man, unbelievable trip. So, so what's next, man? Real quick though, before we move on, we need to take a second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties for their support of the Wired Hunt podcast. And our producer, Spencer Newharth, caught up with one of the Whitetail Properties land specialists recently to get a little insight into the process of booking your first outfitted hunt. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tim Woods, a land specialist out of Central Ohio. And Tim is going to be telling us about what to look for when booking your very first outfitted hunt. Well, I guess I would say if you're looking to book with your, your first outfitted hunt, um, first thing I'll do is, you know, maybe, maybe not go right to social media. I know social media is big th- at this day and age, but you, you want to find an outfitter that is not out there pounding this chest a lot. Um, you know, saying, look at me, look at what we can do. Um, you know, from my experience, you know, being that, you know, I am an outfitter, you know, and I see a lot of, a lot of guys doing a lot of stuff on social media, which is great. You know, they're, they're promoting the sport and they're promoting their business. Um, but they, it seems like they need, they need the hunters, you know, uh, if you want to look for an outfitter that, that is, that doesn't do a whole lot of advertising because they don't need to, because they've got 
a returning client base that, you know, that they cater to and they're just from word of mouth is, is the best, you know, business model you can have as far as taking care of the people and treating them right. And they're always going to come back. And if they can't come back, they're going to have their buddies come in their place and so forth. So, uh, if you look at the book, your first, first outfitted hunt, uh, get some references from that outfitter and call them and see how they treated them, you know, whether they killed or didn't kill. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tim currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash woods. That's W-O-O-D-S. Well, I got back late Sunday, well, Sunday morning, like one in the morning on Sunday, and then slept for a few hours, got up, drove across the state to eastern Montana, found a campsite in this area where I want to hunt, and now I'm trying to kill a Montana whitetail. So trying to get that done. It's been a little bit, uh, it's going to be more challenging than I originally thought. Um, Well, super hot. It's like 95, 97 degrees. So I'm like just sweating to death every day. Excuse me, got hiccups. Um, And then, you know, I'd found a bunch of public land pieces when I just studied the maps. And I was looking for public that Again, like what I was doing last year, I was looking for public land that got down into this river bottom cover that was adjacent to alfalfa fields because I wanted food and I wanted cover that I could hopefully get in between. So I found like five or six of these places on the maps, and then my plan was to get here Sunday night and drive around and glass them all that night and get an idea of which areas held you know possible mature bucks and then go hunt those spots. Well, what I didn't do in my like all these different things going on, what I didn't plan for was like drive time. So I didn't realize how spread out this stuff was. It didn't look that big on the map, but it actually takes like an hour or more to get between some of these places. So that's made it tough for me to like get down and explore some of these like farther southern sections. So um, the first night I explored kind of the northern side, and then the next morning I woke up really early and drove way down to the southern section and checked those out. And nothing really looked all that great, unfortunately. Um, a lot of the stuff is all grazed. So, like, it's just, like, grazed to dirt almost from cows and sheep and stuff. So, like, three out of the, or four out of the six properties that I thought would have potential don't. Like, not even worth hunting at all. Um, another one, there was, I did see some deer in a neighboring alfalfa field, but it was pretty far away from the cover. Like, these deer were pretty far away from the public, and they are, looks like they're heading into bed on the private, too. I didn't know if they are going to make it down to the public or not. I glassed on the, in the spotting scope for a long time and never saw him quite make it there. So that's, I don't know. The best spot that i found so far is the spot that fortunately is closest to my campsite. And um, this there's a state land, and then there's a few sections of BLM land that surround this one alfalfa field where I saw a ton of deer the first night, um, like 50, 60 deer, something like that, including two potential shooter bucks. One for sure shooter, another one that maybe... Um, and so that's where I've been hunting. Um, unfortunately the public land, like I'm not able to get in between the deer. It seems like there's bedding and food on the private. So these deer are bedding and then going right into the private, they're staying on the private to bed. They don't have to come onto the public to bed like they did in that property I hunted last year. Um, so last night I set up a stand um, on one side of this, that's as close as I could get to where that food was. And I was hoping that maybe these deer come out the other side of the cover towards this other distant alfalfa field. And I saw a bunch of deer, maybe like 15 deer, but all does and fawns and then two little year and a half old bucks. 
and went back in there this morning, same place, left everything in the tree, same deal, does and a couple little bucks, nothing, uh, nothing older than a year and a half, a little, little like forky, so that's been a little bit disheartening, was hoping to at least get eyes on a mature buck so I could be adjusting yeah. my stand location based on a sighting, um, but I don't have that, so I pulled my stand this morning, and as soon as we get done with this, I'm going to go back in there and um, move a set. I'm going to try to get to that BLM land that's in there. It's it's landlocked BLM land, so you can't actually access it anyway, except for if you, if you follow the state land all the way to the river, you can get in the river. And the river below the high water mark is public access. You can walk the river. So right. I'm going to walk to the river, and then I'm going to follow that river bottom all the way to this BLM land and then pop up into the public again and try to get there. And that, the piece I'm going to go into is directly behind this alfalfa field. So right. there should be deer in there. The issue is going to be my wind. Um, the wind is just not great. It's going to be blowing to some deer, to some portion right. of the deer. So I'm hoping that I can stay low in the river to get past a good number of them with my wind hopefully not going to blow because I'm going to be down low. And then I'm going to immediately get up and pop right into a tree. And I'm going to know that stuff due south of me is going to win me. But hopefully it's just that one line. And then the rest of it yeah. will hopefully be, um, like, I have to make a sacrifice to get in there. I only have a couple days. So yeah. I got to kind of that risk go reward. It. It's that risk reward thing that we always talk about. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it's a, t- I got to kind of swing for the fences a little bit here because I just don't have a lot of time. But I think it could be a good spot. Um, I met the rancher who grazes the public land and the private land right next to it. He owns that private land next to it, and he was a really nice guy. We chatted for a long time, and he told me he, his son-in-law, I think, and a grandson are hunting his private land, and they've been seeing a couple big bucks, including one he claimed was like 24 inches wide and another one that either had a second main beam or a split brow tine. I'm not sure what he was trying to say, um, but big. Like there's a couple big bucks in there that they're seeing, and that sounds like those are different than the deer I saw the first night. So. I think if I can get into this spot without spooking a bunch of deer, I'm going to be potentially in a good area. Cool. Well, man, hopefully the momentum kind of from the, from the hunt in Alaska kind of carries throughout, uh, the rest of the, the rest of this little Montana, North Dakota trip you're on. Yeah, dude. Thank you. I'm hoping so too. I'm feeling like a little bit like, eh, I don't know about how this is going so far, but tonight, <laughs> tonight we'll, uh, hopefully be in the right spot and then uh yeah probably thursday hopefully i can get it done by thursday and then thursday i'm gonna move to north dakota and try to refigure it all out again (laughs) and that's the fun part right yeah it is it is so and it's it is supposed to cool down thursday or like wednesday night thursday morning a big cold front's coming through um it's gonna rain a bunch which will be a little bit of a pain but it's gonna drop like 20 30 degrees so that should get deer moving Awesome. Well, good luck, man. Thank you, sir. So that's my story. That's what's going on with me. Anything else on your side that you want to share? <laughs> that's me fake crying. What about, no. the, what about the trail camera? You checked the trail camera. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got, you know, I, I talk about this big ag field with a buffer strip in it, right? Yep. We shed, yep, hunter, so, we shed hunter there, right? Yep. We shed hunter there. And every every big mature buck that is in the area was on that trail camera. So, um, on, on the one side of the farm, 
they all show up right in the middle of this uh, this ag field. And uh, um, if it wasn't for my son coming here anytime soon, I would definitely be finding a way. I actually did a, uh, a podcast uh, with Scott Bestel recently where we talk about uh, early, some early season hunting. And he – me and him get into a conversation of, of, about hunting ag fields standing ag fields in a scenario like what i'm talking about here Uh early early season and the goal for me would be to you know get in one of these trees and catch these deer they're basically living in an 80 acre ag field right now right that standing corn right that standing corn and with the big acorn drop that is happening right now there's I have a feeling they're bedding in the corn and then coming out to a couple acorn groves that are that surround this ag field and um, or not in the in the corn they're not bedding in the corn but they're probably bedding in some of these buffer strips in the corn so it's roughly the same thing and uh, making their way to some of these acorn drop sites and uh, if if I was able to do it, which I'm not. Uh, I would be somewhere in between these buffer strips and these acorn spots. So. Dan. Dan. Yes, 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 yes. Please, please find a way to hunt in October. You have to. You have, gonna, to you have to hunt in October. Well, here's the deal, and you know this, man, or you're gonna you're gonna know this. I, I know, I know, know, I know. It's, I and know, it's not an excuse, dude. It is not. It's not an excuse. I know. Just it's you gotta shit find a way. I have to do. You gotta find it's a shit way. I have to do. <laughs> I, if, if if I if I I'm gonna send I'm you. Being, I'm I'm gonna send you a hundred dollars. With, I'm going to send you a hundred dollar check in the memo line. It's going to say babysitter, and I'm going to hire. I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to send you a babysitter check, and you're going to pay for at least one night of babysitting on a good evening. Oh, buddy, and you're going to hunt. I and then you can and then you can show your wife. You can say, "Look, Mark sent me a hundred dollar check. I can't not use it. I have to hunt." Right. Here's what the the memo should say: hundred dollars for this is an a in a payoff. You should just write the check to my wife and be blunt <laughs> about it. Be like, this this is letting Dan hunt uh, one night. Go buy yourself something nice, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, go buy yourself something nice. That's exact. That's what it should be. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 dead serious, Dan. I'm gonna buy you a night of hunting in October. I'm gonna send you a check. <laughs> first cold front. Yep. First cold front in October. You go into a good spot, kill one of those suckers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I wish it was, I wish it was that easy. All right, we'll look for look for it in the mail here when I get back. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll see what we'll see if you if you address. I think she I think she'd be down for it if you give her the money directly to her and it doesn't touch my hands at all. Okay. All right. So do you want me to address it to her? Like write write her a special like oh, write her yep. a letter like dear yep. dearest Sarah dearest Sarah. Yeah. Dearest Sarah, congrats on the new child. Um, here's a hundred dollars bill as basically a bribe to let your hunt, husband go hunting one night in. <laughs> oh, this will be amazing! All right, I'm gonna do this, and I just need okay. you to report back to me on exactly how she takes it. Okay. And then we're gonna really hype up this hunt. Like I'm gonna want full documentation of the hunt. I want like Instagram stories every five minutes. I'm going to want okay. you to do a full podcast debrief talking about how this all worked out. <laughs> this will be our like October 15th episode will be like the post Dan Johnson, October hunt. And, um, yeah, this is a good plan. I like it. Okay. 
All right. Well, we'll uh, the the first thing is you have to write the check to my wife, and then after that, we'll see how it all goes down. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude. There is there is a chance. That I'm not not joking. That there's a small chance that she would send the check back to you, or <laughs> send you a text that it's uh, that's worth that that's worth two hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I have three kids now, man, remember? Oh man. Well you will soon. Yep. Well dude, I'd say we ought to we ought to shut this down. I need to uh scramble some caribou brains. Um I gotta clean out the brain uh cavity area on the skull on my of my boo here. Get that cleaned yep. out so it doesn't rot. And yep. then I need to take a nap before hunting. So <laughs> Sounds like a good day. Yes, that's that's the day's plan. So uh Good luck with baby stuff. If you guys uh, end up having having him early, fingers yep. crossed, everything's great and healthy. And yep. uh, let's check back in a week. All right. Good luck, man. And that's it, folks. Thank you for joining in for a little bit of story time today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And before we go, I want to give a big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. I appreciate your time and your support. If you're hunting this week, I wish you all the luck in the world. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.